1: In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today.
0: What in the world is happening on Wall Street? Economic indicators. Who knows where this is going to end up?
1: To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. Welcome to the David McWilliams podcast. The podcast, again, the idea is to make economics as accessible, as open, as comprehensible and as relevant as possible. As always, I'm joined by my old mate John Davis to tease out the issues. And this week, the issue is going to be what happens in Ireland, particularly Northern Ireland, after Brexit, in terms of the road towards United Ireland. Now, it's made Much more significant with the news that Theresa May's premiership is over. She's gone. There is now going to be a new Prime Minister in the UK. It's likely to be Boris Johnson. The question is, is Boris Johnson going to be the last Prime Minister of the United Kingdom as we know it? And if the United Kingdom breaks up under the strains of Brexit, the most important issue for Irish people is Northern Ireland. Irish unity or what might end up being a shared Ireland which is totally different to the Ireland that we now live in. This, and I really believe this, is the most significant change that will come about as a result of Brexit and the British decision to leave the European Union. Before we begin... I want to just mention that this episode is brought to you thanks to our Patreon supporters. And to help support the content, and perhaps more importantly, to unlock exclusive comment and scenes and footage and episodes, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. So, Mr. Davis, how are you, man? Very good indeed. You were in London this week. I was over in the mainland. Had, took <laughs> took a wee Don't spin you mainland me now all right?
0: <laughs> Took a wee spin over to London I actually haven't been there in years I Used to live there as you know was, Both yeah. of us lived there I was there for about 16, 17 years But I was amazed at how it's changed It's really thriving But I love it Because I still actually see it As a kind of a second home Because I spent so
1: long there Yeah I was trying to explain To an American once About the Irish relationship With London And I said basically With London it's a bit like If you're from Boston It's like our New York like yeah. it's there, you know it really well. You've lived in good areas. I've lived in bad areas. I actually first went to London amazingly. I was thinking in the summer I left school in 84. And I just remember when, when we were in London in the 80s, and when then I went back there again to work in a proper job yeah. in the 90s. You know, Northern Ireland loomed large. It was still very much, I and mean, because course the, the provosts were still bombing in, 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 in London. and Yeah, Canary Wharf. It's hard to imagine how different Ireland is now to the Ireland of 25 years ago. And I was thinking that last week, I was up in the north, I was in Belfast doing, doing an event with an Israeli company, which I'll explain to you later on. It's a very, very okay. interesting initiative. They're trying to get Belfast City Council to introduce a Belfast coin, which they are doing. And it's supported by the Rockefeller Foundation. And the idea is that the Belfast coin, it's an app but it's actually, it rewards you for good behavior. So if you get public transport oh. six or seven times, good environmental behavior. Okay. So if you get, uh, no, no, not oh, good social behavior. Exactly, <laughs> you did your record, exactly. And you didn't, you know, it's confession, you didn't lie to my mother. Anyway, it's a thing called, the Rockefeller Foundation have identified 10 cities yeah. around the world that they're putting money into. And then the Belfast City Council also put money into, and they're creating a thing called Belfast Coin. And that is a reward you will get if you for example take public transport leave your car at home you get points and it's all i can get a coffee you can you can get a sambo you can get your lunch free all that sort of thing and the idea is to change people's behavior in order to make the city more livable in and it's really interesting and it's it's bizarre it is bizarre but it's it's interesting because what it's basically saying is is if you cycle to work yeah you're going to get more Belfast coins. If you get public transport to work, okay? If you use the parks, the local parks, all that stuff. And if you shop local. Okay. Because one of the interesting things about Belfast, and we're going to talk about this now, is that whereas Dublin has about 120,000 people live between the canals, between 100 and 120,000. Yeah. In Belfast, there's only 8,000 people live in the centre. Really? Yeah. So Belfast, when you go up there, it's a big city, but it's not lived in. So the idea is to make it lived-in to create a vibrant urban centre, to ultimately construct a kind of a creative city yeah. where people would like to come and live there, and therefore to allow the city to flourish. And of course, the idea is if Belfast begins to flourish, then it changes the dynamic in Northern Ireland. So that was what I was doing today, and it was because of that I thought of this United Ireland thing because I, I walked around the city. You know, you walk around the cathedral quarter in Belfast. Really, really nice. Yeah. But then you realize as you go further out that it's still a city that needs a lot of love. And what I actually thought about Belfast is that it doesn't love itself. Yes, Cities have to kind of love themselves and it doesn't love itself. And as a result of that, attitudes have to change within Belfast in order for it to become the city that Belfast Council wanted to become, which is a more open city. And what was also interesting is that they had elections up there council elections and for once the middle ground seemed to win seats okay. so it wasn't just your your crowd and my crowd Yeah. there was the, the middle crowd, and that was got me thinking about the north
0: it's interesting like your lovely wife shan is, is your a Nordic? lovely wife
1: your <laughs> fragrant wife <Shan. laughs>
0: your current wife yes yes my first wife <laughs> is is so you know the yeah. the, 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 the tribe quite well, well well
1: i do i know i know the i, I know the unionist tribe well yeah. i don't know the nationalist tribe uh, very well. It's an interesting thing. I mean, I've thought about the North for a while. It was very, I was actually thinking about Star Trek and the North Go on. That in 1990, when you were hanging around London, and when I was in London, yeah. an episode of Star Trek was banned. And the reason it was banned, Star Trek has been banned in Ireland and England and nowhere else. It was censored. And the reason it was censored was that Commander Data the real nerd, the kind of yeah. Finn McLaughlin of the Finn, whole, right? Yeah. Commander, Commander Finn, Data, we should Commander, call him that. That's a good idea, call him Commander. <laughs> but Commander Data was musing about terrorism and freedom fighters from the vantage point of twenty or twenty-three sixty-four, something like right, that, right? Right, right, right. And he mused out loud that Ireland had become unified in twenty twenty-four, so in five years' time, and because it was because it was in nineteen ninety. The BBC banned it because they thought that him musing aloud about the success of terrorism, freedom fighters, whatever you want to call yeah. them, would actually embolden both sides right. yeah, to yeah. violence. And if you think, I mean, 1990 was when the IRA bombed the Stock Exchange in London. Yeah. The IRA killed the Conservative, right. Ian Gow. Do you remember him? A minister very close to Thatcher. Right. And 87 people were murdered by either side in the north. So it was a serious year. And what struck me was that he mightn't, Commander Data, given what's happened in Brexit, given what's happened in demography, given what's happened in economy, 2024 might not necessarily be the year of a united Ireland, but it could well be the year, so he mightn't have been that far the beginning wrong, of it. where the Catholic population tips over to a majority, yeah. and then it all changes. So I was... Thinking about that what today.
0: What a bizarre and extraordinary storyline.
1: I mean, the BBC and RT have banned very few things. Yeah. But they thought Star Trek was sufficiently inflammatory to ban <laughs> it in 1990. So that's what we're going to kick off today. Excellent. And as you said, yeah, I am half Northern, okay, in terms of my marriage. It's funny for most Southerners to use the Star Trek expression, you know, the final frontier. Many Southerners think the North is the final frontier, like it's different and we don't know it. And certainly when we were growing up in in Monkstown, I, I met very few Northerners Yeah, and we never went there until our good mate Murphy, who's now in Hong Kong, yeah. like our entire generation is scattered to the four winds, married a Northerner and he asked me to become his best man. But the interesting thing is the bridesmaid at the marriage couldn't stop laughing at us Dubliners and our ridiculous notions. And who is that? And then I married her and I married the bridesmaid and that was it. So that's how I got, that's how I got to know the Northerners. And so that was 25 years ago and just before the ceasefire, the IRA ceasefire. Yeah. And I have been perplexed by the North ever since. And that's, that was the beginning of my Northern Odyssey, which now culminates obviously in, you know, monthly visits up to sea granny and the kids, sure, sure. you know, and our in-laws and all that. So I do know it quite well.
0: So this, we were talking about Brexit before and the kind of love unintended consequences. Is the North going to be part of that? Is it going to be one of those? This is
1: the issue. So if you stand back and think, right, the Good Friday Agreement, the IRA ceasefire 25 years ago, 1994. Yeah. yeah. Then you have this proxy, is it on, of decommissioning, this, that, and the other. Then you have the Good Friday Agreement of 1998. Yeah. Okay. And the Good Friday Agreement is 21 years old this year, and we should never really underestimate how powerful it is. But what it did was it kind of locked in the status quo. So the Unionists could be British, the Nationalists could be Irish. There was a sort of a, a give and take compromise in the middle. Yeah. Now, it didn't really matter if on the ground there was not much marine. You know, as I've always said, the best thing about Northern Proves is you should sleep with them. That's the best way for Southerners to get to know them. You should sleep with them, marry them, have kids with them, right? Right. And then all is good. So our our kids are like the Good Friday Agreement incarnate. Yeah. Right? Yeah, God, yeah, love yeah. them, right? But anyway, so that was the status quo. And it lasted and it was quite firm. Now, of course, you've got Stormont and this, that and the other. But it was what people accepted was the best option. Northern Ireland, in Britain, in Europe. Yeah. Brexit changes that. Yeah. So the Northern Irish obviously then vote significantly to remain in Europe. And that was Britain. both
0: sides, of course. Both sides, yeah. mainly
1: mainly nationalists, but a big chunk of middle of the road unionists, a big chunk of unionists who said, Look, we want to be European, we want good relations with the South, and let's see how it goes, yeah. right? And we're and we're happy with Britain as a devolved, decentralized States where yes, the capital is London, but you've got the Scottish Parliament, you have the Welsh Parliament, and you have the Stormont Executive. Okay? Yeah, this is Blair's. This is big, Blair's big, big idea that we yeah. decentralise the UK, and that will give the regions as much power as they need, and you'll basically keep the whole project on the road. Yeah, Brexit changes that because to Northern Irish nationalists, it says you are going to be part of a Britain, a kind of a very English Britain, Farage's Britain. And they're like, we don't want that. So suddenly the Good Friday Agreement, which is the status quo, which everybody more or less agreed with, is now put in the back burner. And Brexit changes the dynamic. The Northerners vote to stay in the European Union, but they're being dragged out by the Farages, the Boris Johnsons. Yeah. All these people who show nothing but contempt for Irish history. And frankly, you're back to a situation where the Northern question again begins to open. What is going to happen? And then you add on top of that the crucial thing, which is demography, because demography is destiny. And in a place like Northern Ireland that was set up demographically to ensure a Protestant stroke unionist majority, once your entire legitimacy as a state is based on demographics, then if your demographics changes, and nationalists become the majority, then you have a total change.
0: This is the 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 angle that most of the Brexiteers really don't get. No. And because they don't and, care. Well, they don't care. And and this is where, you know, they hadn't thought this through, and now we're we are on the road to uh,
1: well, well well, the interesting thing about the DUP is the DUP are implacably opposed to United Ireland. That's their core value. Yeah. But by supporting Brexit in the way they have done, they have probably done more than any nationalist politician or any nationalist movement in the last 70 years to bring a united Ireland yeah. forward. Because the Catholics in the North said, hold on a second, we want something different. Yeah. And therefore we look at the demographics. And I, I did something really interesting. The great thing about economics is the data, right? And the Brits have a census every 10 years. So the last census was 2011. And the Brits break down their population in Northern Ireland on Catholic or Protestant religious grounds, okay? And they do it in cohorts of every 10 years. So if you look at the oldest cohort in Northern Ireland, these are the people over 90. So these are the people who were born around the time of partition or just after. So these are the first children of the Northern Irish state. What you see is the split between Catholics and Protestants is 68% Protestant, so close to 70% Protestant, 25% Catholic. And then 5% no religion. Yeah. So that really was the status quo at partition. And those people there, there's 12,000 of them still left. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about Work. So over 90s, massive Protestant majority underpinning the union, underpinning the status quo. If you look at the same statistics for kids under the age of 10, so the new generation coming up, the Protestant population is halved. It's 35%. The Catholic population has almost doubled to the mid-40s. So United Ireland, based on the proxy, and I know people will argue that not all Catholics are nationalists, not all Protestants are unions, but it's a good approximation for what's going on. What you see is the United Ireland is coming. The Catholics are going to be in a majority. It's inevitable unless there's some change in the North. So you take two things. One is Brexit is a political earthquake. Then that refocuses on the demography, and the demography is only pointing to a united Ireland. And then the interesting thing is that the nationalists simply just have to wait. Yeah. The unionists have to come up with a reason to make nationalists love Northern Ireland in order for Northern Ireland to remain an integrated state. And that's where we need to look at the economics.
0: Yeah. So how is that going to play out, particularly with regards to the Republic?
1: Well, let's again look at the numbers, right? So how it's going to play out. So culturally, we know that it's very different. But for so long, I remember Northerners come down and say, oh, the road's here. They complain about the roads and the fact that when, do you remember the cars when we were kids that everybody had in our estate was always a sort of a a two-tone Fiat 127 that had been kind of panel beaten to within each of (laughs) his life, kind of orange and a bit yellow and and the Northerns all had swanky cars because they were they were richer. But if you look now, the interesting thing, economically speaking, partition, and this is to come back to your question about what about us, right? Partition has been a disaster economically for Northern Ireland, for both Catholics and Protestants. Yeah. Because if you go back to 1921, when the state was divided, 80% of the entire industrial production of the entire island of Ireland came from the three counties around Belfast. Yeah. 80% of all industry. It was much more innovative, much more sophisticated technologically and commercially. Northern Ireland was, mm. or the, the counties that became Northern yeah, yeah, Ireland. Yeah. Belfast was even a bigger city. People forget this. In 1911, the census, Belfast had a population of 380,000 and Dublin had a population of 300,000. Now Dublin is three times more than Belfast. So at partition, the Northern Irish had a much higher income, much more sophisticated economy, much bigger city and a city that's growing faster. You look now 80 years later, sorry, 100 years later, Northern Ireland is a total backwater. Dublin is four times bigger. But just to give you a sense, Northern Ireland exports 10 billion euros worth of goods. The Republic of Ireland exports 283 billion euros worth of goods. The Republic of Ireland's income, and this is back to your question about yeah. e- economics, is average income here is 38,000 a year. Average income in the Northern Ireland is 22,000 a year. Wow. So they're much poorer. And when, did this, when did this change begin this to happen? All, this the interesting thing. Is, this, is, this is beginning to happen all through the 1950s and 1960s. Okay. Obviously, the troubles changed. Because if you blow the retail centre out of their cities and towns, you're going to get an economy that's totally traumatised Yeah, you scare off it. investors. And- you absolutely scare off investors. But the interesting thing about the peace process is if there was a peace dividend that went with the peace process, it came south didn't yeah. go north so they haven't had the investment but they haven't you, even you
0: know in the, in the peace process was there not supposed to be an economic development upside, yeah.
1: yeah well this is what you'd imagine so what has happened is the south has benefited disproportionately from peace in the north whereas the north has not yeah so take for example a metric i always use for economics is how many foreigners live in the country Okay. because foreigners go to good countries Immigrants don't come to bad countries. Yes, they go to yeah, countries yeah, that yeah. are growing, right? So the, one of the greatest asset tests is, do people want to live in your country? And if they do, you're doing something right. Yeah. In the South, one in, soon to be one in five people are foreign born. Yeah. In the North, it's about one in 20. So okay, it's a totally right. different thing. Yeah. But what happened, therefore, is the Southern economy took off in the 90s. The Northern economy did not. But the change in both economies is so big now that the average spending power of Southerners is almost twice that of Northerners. And one of the great ways I look at this, I have this index in my head called the TripAdvisor Index oh, yeah. of Economic Development. And what I do is I go to a city and I have a look at TripAdvisor. And if a city has got profoundly more restaurants in one city than another, something deep is going on culturally so if you take two cities one kilkenny
0: yeah
1: and one is armagh and the reason i was in armagh is i was doing something at the seamus heaney center a couple of weeks ago and i drove through armagh and i wanted to actually figure out this kilkenny and armagh are both marketed as towns with city status with big cultural infrastructure lots of stuff going on population about the same populations are kilkenny's a little bit a little bit bigger but not much yeah but there's 176 restaurants on TripAdvisor reviewed in Kilkenny, and there's 44 in Armagh. Wow. And that shows you a totally different tourism, different way of spending money, different incomes, all that. So that's kind of, I love these little indicators. That
0: TripAdvisor thing is very interesting. Uh, I'd be curious about the breakdown of uh, cuisine. But anyway, that's for another day. Um, So what is the implication then for us down here in terms of the economics?
1: The implications, John, are, absolutely huge. Now, I believe that this is the only real economic, social, and political question that is coming down the road at us that we haven't really prepared for. Yeah. Lots of other things we're talking about, we've ventilated, we know what's going on, we know what we have to do. But the United Ireland are a changed Ireland. Let's just say a changed Ireland. The first thing is, could we afford it economically? So the Brits gave a subvention of 10 billion euros a year to Northern Ireland to keep the place afloat. Yeah. If Northern Ireland were on its own, like we are, and had to go out into the bond market and issue debt, which we do as a sovereign country, Northern Ireland's budget deficit every year would be 27% of its total GDP. Our budget wow. deficit, so it couldn't couldn't survive. Our yeah. budget deficit is 1%. So basically, we and the Brits understand that Northern Ireland is like an orphan child that needs to be looked after. It yeah. cannot sustain these standards of living, which are entirely fabricated due to British public sector investment in Northern Ireland on its own. It can't pay for itself. So could could we afford that? So let's have a look at the numbers. So Northern Ireland's economy is about 50 billion euros. The Republic of Ireland's economy is 300 billion. So we're much, much, much bigger. Northern Ireland's subvention from Britain is about 10 billion a year. That would on current GDP figures in Ireland equate to about 4% of our GDP per year. Okay. Could we borrow 4% of our GDP per year to keep them going? Absolutely. Absolutely. Do we want to borrow
0: 4%? Yeah, that's the big question.
1: Yeah, and obviously then there's all the political stuff. If if loyalism were to fight, for example. Wouldn't... Yeah, well, it is the big question of do we actually want it? Well, which is what, is what, what, do, those... you th- what do you think? Because I mean, look, I'm 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 more vested in the north than most yeah. southerners are.
0: Well, I don't have that kind of ideological view of a United Ireland, a romantic view of a United Ireland. So, having said that, you know, I think having a United Ireland rugby team is a huge boon. Uh, it'd be great to have
1: that as a soccer team too. And then- the only problem is the Republic wouldn't get any players on the soccer team. but The Northerners are <laughs> better footballers. True. That's
0: probably very true. Uh, but yeah, I think I, I would like to see it, but I, I would hate to have a kind of a role reversal where we start having terrorism, unionists start up in arms, and stuff. It's a it's a little bit like a an arranged marriage, and arranged marriages
1: never really work out, or oh, they do work out in the long run, but nobody's happy. Yes, so it looks yeah. good. So if you look at again, I've spoken to a lot of my family up north about this over the years and I would say that the biggest impediment to United Ireland given the demography is the fact that lots and lots of Southerners are happy with the status quo Yeah. so in a way you mentioned the rugby team they're happy to hang out with Rory Best in the Aviva after a game but there's no fucking way we're going to pay the dole of sectarian Rangers fans from East Belfast yeah. out of our pocket that's really the difference yeah. but and let's look at The challenge for the North now is that demography and Brexit and economics suggest that nationalists' political strategy is just wait. They don't have to do anything. Whereas the unionists have to come up with a political strategy that makes Northern Ireland attractive to nationalists. Because ultimately the interesting thing is unionists are going to have to persuade nationalists to vote unionist in order to preserve the union. Yeah. which is the real paradox of where we're going to go. And in order to do that, I think unionists are going to have to find a de, a de Klerk type character. Right. Do you remember F.W. de Klerk? I do. Who, based in South Africa, said to the whites, it's only going one way. Let's make a deal now with this Mandela dude, because he's going to be much more plausible and we're, our position is much stronger than whatever the hell is coming after him. Yeah. And I think unionism has to find a de Klerk type figure to actually say, hold on a second, the world is changing. And in order to do that, to make the North more attractive, they have to make it much more open. So for, for example, LGBT, they have to have LGBT rights up there. They have to have abortion rights. Yeah. Northern Irish women cannot have abortions, even though all other British women can have abortions. So the unionists are kind of British when they want to be, or the DUP, and they're not British when they don't want to be yeah. on LGBT. I also think they're going to have to figure out, and we're going to have to figure out a way of looking at the all ireland as one economy and when we're going to attract an investment i mean we need the office space that is northern ireland you know we need the infrastructure (laughs) right yeah and and their wages are lower than ours but the population is well educated so together we can do things which i believe would be in the interests of everybody but that means john it's not necessarily a united ireland under the republican flag Forcing unionists, of which there's eight hundred thousand. Yeah, but to put that in context, there'll be more immigrants in Ireland than unionists in the next year on the whole island. Okay, okay. Right. so That's the vacu- you know what I mean so it's yeah. quite because because our society's changed, but we've got to figure out a shared island. How do we share the island so that they're not threatened and their nationalists in the north feel at home? Now this is where a really interesting article by Seamus Mallon was written which I read the other day and I thought it was fantastic. And he talked about trying to create in the North a shared home, a place where all traditions can figure out that they kind of belong without one crowd winning and one crowd feeling. How does that work? Well, he was trying to say that it behoves Northern Irish politicians and ourselves Mm -hmm. to begin to dial down the language, to change things, and ultimately to see that if, Ireland is to avoid something really nasty like the Civil War, which could happen if the United Ireland is exclusively the only option. Then we've got to figure out a way of a confederation, maybe having something where Ulster still or Northern Ireland still remains slightly separate, some sort of joint authority. But ultimately, and I come back to it, the status quo that has pertained for the first hundred years of Northern Ireland's state, Mm -hmm. because it's a hundred years old, two years' time, Mm -hmm. and which was bolstered by the Good Friday Agreement, is Mm -hmm. over. So what Brexit has done, it has changed the Good Friday Agreement, it has undermined the Good Friday Agreement, it's brought forward Irish unity, because demographics is destiny, and then ultimately for all Irish people, for us and for Northerners, We have got to figure out what is clearly the biggest political question, which is how do we live together in peace on this island, all of us together? Thanks so much for listening to the podcast. Now, if you like our content and you want to support us, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. If you become a patron... You can unlock all sorts of interesting new content, interviews. I'm going to be doing ticket giveaways for those interviews, those conversations with really interesting people, experiences that you can't get anywhere else. And this will ensure that the podcast remains ad free and you can get all of this stuff for the price of a pint.